Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Densha. I'm your host, Rob Kent, author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beast, but I'm guessing you listen to this show pretty regular, so you already know you can get that wonderful ebook for free whenever you're watching or listening to this. You can also get it as a paperback or an audiobook. But today we're going to be talking YA horror, so I feel it's important I remind you I'm also Robert Kent author of All Together Now, A Zombie Story, uh, All Right Now, A Short Zombie Story, Pizza Delivery. Oh my God, what a beautiful short story Pizza Delivery is about an axe murderer chasing a pizza guy. You're going to have a good time. And The Book of David, which is a five-volume serial horror novel written uh, very much in the style of Stephen King. If you've been reading a lot of Stephen King, when you read The Book of David, you're going to think, well, it seems like Rob is intentionally aping the style and the uh, uh, craftsmanship of Stephen King, though be it to a lesser extent. And you'll be 100% right. That's my Stephen King book, The Book of David. If you're curious, you can check out The Book of David, Chapter 1, for free. Uh, it's a five-volume series, so that will get you started. Get that one for free. Or if you like, check the back catalog. Uh, during the pandemic, to keep myself from going out of my skull, I recorded a whole audiobook of it for you. You can have that for free as well. Uh, and for more information and more interviews with literary agents, editors, authors, all the world's best people, head to middlegradeninja.com. More than enough intro, we got to get started. We've got Amy Christine Parker with us today. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm excited. I am thrilled to chat all things horror with you. Um, and I know that you've listened to the show before, so you know that I keep, you probably heard one or two attempts at me summarizing somebody else's biography and thought, well, that's going terribly. I hope he stops doing that. And, and I have. <laughs> so I won't make you sit through me summarizing either your biography or your book. Uh, please give a esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background and we'll go from there. Okay, so I have been an author uh, full-time since 2013. Um, I've had three books out previous to this one. So I really, I write horror and thriller. I sort of straddle that world. And my first three books were considered more thriller, um, Gated and Astray. My first two books, those are psychological thrillers. And then I did Smash and Grab, which was sort of this heist caper. And now I have Flight 171. But I've been an author for a while. I would say uh, being an author was my midlife crisis. I was a teacher before that and realized I didn't want to go back to the classroom necessarily, but um, uh, I wanted to do something else. And that's when I decided to be a, a writer. And uh, once I figured that out, I have been in it 100% ever since. So it's kind of where I'm at. I'm down here in Tampa. That's where I live um, and write from. And um, yeah, and in my spare time, I watch a lot of horror. <laughs> I love this idea of, of a mid, I mean, if you're going to have a midlife crisis, that's about the healthiest one you can have, right? It's right. <laughs> it's the least expensive anyway. Like paper and pen are pretty cheap. I didn't go get the sports car or like, you know, the plastic surgery or whatever, all that stuff that costs lots of money that, you know, in a search or quest to be young, I think I just was like, it. life is too short. What could I do if I could do anything that might make me happy? Um, because teaching was great. I love kids, but there's a lot about teaching that doesn't involve the teaching aspect of it. So um, I was uh, looking for something different. So yeah, it was it was a safer way to have a midlife crisis maybe, but that's maybe me. I don't think I'm like one of those people who just goes to extremes. Um, so for me, that was extreme, leaving something that seems kind of stable to, to enter a profession that's, that's 100% not. <laughs> Well, counterpoint, if you buy a nice sports car, yes, it's expensive, but it's done. There's no emotional, feel, there's no ongoing angst about how am I doing? Is this going well for me? Is it not going well? <laughs> Very true. 
very true. <laughs> the car is in the garage. You can go out there and visit anytime you want. Done. <laughs> yeah, that is true. But my husband would be like, they're absolutely not. Because as it is, I am like a little too fast a driver. <laughs> so my kids will tell you. Um, I'm known to get a ticket or two for speeding. So if I had a sports car, it would be bad news. <laughs> Just so if you can't scare people with your horror fiction, you'll scare them with your driving. I'll, I'll scare them on the road, right? <laughs> <laughs> Although living in Florida, I don't think I'm probably the scariest driver. We are kind of a crazy lot down here. So Florida, it, a lot of people like liken our roads to Mad Max, like Thunderdome. <laughs> and that's kind of what it's like. So I have driven through Florida and it's a race in my mind between who of the, of the places I've done some driving. It's a race in my mind uh, between Florida and Tennessee, especially around the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. Those people have roller coaster tracks for roads, and they're still flying across them at 90, 100 miles per hour. This is true. I know I don't get that. I'm so scared of heights. I do not know how they take those turns. And there's no guardrail. They're just, like, going. And it, I mean, and it's narrow. So you can't even get around each other. You do, like, there's no room for error. You're going off the side of the mountain. And maybe it's the horror writer in me, but I always think of, like, the worst case scenario that could possibly happen. So, I, yeah, I'm amazed at them, too. I've been there a couple of times and just been, like, I can't. I, my husband has to drive because I can't. Not, not around those roads. <laughs> just somewhere there's a calculation that so long as everything goes perfectly right and there's yeah. never a problem with my car i'm definitely going to survive this i'm like well that's i mean yeah maybe but let's <laughs> let's not take that bet let's maybe let's right. i'm used to the flatland so all they'll be honking at me because i'm going 40 miles an hour and they're 65 yeah. 70 i'm like nope i'm not flying over on that uh flying off that cliff nope exactly maybe like mere survival is kind of a low bar <laughs> so i look at it i would rather do a little bit better than that <laughs> so <laughs> As soon as I get out of this body cast, I'll be right back on the road. Exactly. <laughs> so um, I know that you had um, been a stay-at-home mom for a while, and you began, you had, what, eight years as a stay-at-home mom, and you began making up stories for your children. And then you and your husband, I love this, you come to an agreement that you've got about two years to become a writer. So how does that work, and what does that two years look like? Well, you know, it was funny because um, I think Dean Koontz had sort of a similar deal with his wife at some point. And maybe that's where we came up with the idea because uh, I think his was a little longer than mine, though. I think he got like five years. Um, but, you know, uh, where my husband was uh, supportive of the idea of me writing, but it literally came out of the blue. So it wasn't I was always a reader. I was always somebody who loved books. We knew that. And I think like I always, you know, I was a good writer. I knew that. But I didn't go to school for it. I hadn't written in a really long time, not since, you know, before college. And um, so when I came to him with this idea, um, you know, I have to hand it to him because he didn't, like, freak out or think I had lost it or whatever. But he was like, yeah, okay, I think, you know, we can do that. And you've already been home. So I think we could probably manage with you staying home maybe two more years before we kind of need you to do something to bring in some money. So um, it was sort of set for us financially. So our financial situation sort of set that time period. And literally when I started, I knew nothing about the industry. I mean, I, I Googled, like, how do you write a novel? Like, what was it like to get published? And went down that rabbit hole. And I wrote a really horrible, awful first book. This was back in the time of Twilight. So I had that like broody, don't like me because I'm dangerous guy and all of these things that weren't really me as a writer. It was me trying to like emulate the market at the time, I guess, um, and learn. And so I wrote this really horrible book and had joined a poetry group because there was no um, novel writing group in my area. And um, so I was doing poetry, trying to learn how to write. 
and I do that like a couple of times a month. Um, and it was put on by a couple of professors at a, a local college here, St. Leo University. And I learned a lot by writing prose because actually with poetry, every word counts. So what's great about that is you really pay attention on a sentence level, like on that like more minute level. So everything you say has to have power and everything you write. And so um, that's how I learned, wrote that really bad book. And while I was writing that, um, my agent, Lucien Diver, who you've interviewed before, had come to our writers group. She knew somebody in the group and had kind of come to sort of talk writing as a writer in that capacity. And so we get to know each other um, as fellow writers and um, we sort of shared and swapped work a couple of times. And she took a look at that first novel and said, okay, you have, you know, you have writing talent. Uh, however, the story is not sellable. So what else do you have? And at the time I, um, I had had my first idea that was really mine. It was something that I came up with on my own that just like really spoke to me. Um, and I kind of pitched her that idea and she like brightened up and said, okay, write that. And when you get done writing that, send that to me because that sounds interesting. And so that really galvanized me to get going again. So that first novel took me the first like seven, eight months of that two years to write. And then, um, I queried it to like three. I mean, it was a very small pool of agents because once Lucienne said it wasn't sellable, I believed her and figured it was good to just move on since that was probably not, you know, going to be my first sold book. And I went and dove right into the next project. And that next project took me uh, another like eight ish months to finish. And then I sent it to her and literally, um, I think I sent it to her in November of that year. And she didn't get to read it until after the holidays because she's pretty busy and has kind of a large author roster. Um, but she got to it in January and she read it over a weekend and um, texted me saying like, I'm halfway through, it's really interesting, more to come. And of course I had a heart attack when I got that text thinking, okay, what does this mean? Um, and then uh, the next day she offered me representation um, and we met for coffee and um, it took off from there. And then from there, a month later, the book sold. So I made it like just under that two year window um, with that first book selling, but it went really, really fast. I got extremely lucky. I know that my path upfront is not normal for most writers um, at all. But however, a lot of my struggle came after that period of time. So I had a kind of a much easier time up front. And then I went through like a long period where, uh, between published books where I, I really struggled. So I've paid my dues. I just didn't pay them on the front end. That front end went really fast and I got really lucky. When uh, Lucine um, is, is, which first of all, any writers who are listening should take from this story that you didn't just start writing, you got out and into the community and what an incredibly uh, fortunate turn of events that you're able to, to bump into her and have that relationship going. But does she know when she's reading your book that, hey, I'm on a timeline, I'm almost at two years and then I guess I'll be teaching. <laughs> no, I never told her that. And actually um, what I will say that I did do right is when I met her, I never like actively pitched her my work. Um, I looked at it like she was an agent and I was excited about that. And it was highly unusual because I'm in Tampa, Florida, and most agents lived in New York, especially at that time. And she had just moved down, I think maybe the year before or whatever. Um, but it was extremely lucky to run into her. However, um, what I did is that um, I talked to her as a fellow writer. And then I asked her if um, she needed a, like a critique partner, if I could read her work. And my thought process was, um, I can learn a lot from this person. She's a professional. She's been in the in this world for a long time. Reading her work and seeing it in a raw form and then watching her go through the editing process is going to help me learn as a writer. And so um, that was one of the things that I did right. And I never pitched her any of my work or talked to her about it 
uh, for a while. In fact, most of the time she actively asked me because I didn't say anything. Uh, and I asked her, you know, a lot about her industry. So we would meet as friends and write. We would do writing sessions at Barnes & Noble. But um, I would ask her questions in those time periods, but just like fellow writer to fellow writer, never with this pressure that, you know, I was expecting her to represent me or that I expected anything from her. And so by the time that I had some quality work to show her, she was really open to seeing it because I'd kind of proven myself as a critique partner. I'd proven myself as a fellow writer. Um, so we had like a really good sort of personal relationship that then moved into professional. Um, but that I did write, I think. And that, and then when we didn't have a novel writing group in my area, I started my own. So that poetry group I was in, there were several people who also were looking at writing longer form stories and um, I established another group with them. And we sort of just peer mentored each other through the process. So those were a couple of things that um, I think really helped me grow quickly in a short period of time. Well, for those who are listening and thinking, this sounds great, I want to be like Amy, how do you go about uh, starting your own writing group? Uh, I, I stole from the original group that I was in. I just <laughs> leached some of those people into my group. Um, and then some of them had friends, and then it sort of grew from there. But we were pretty small. I think it was like five people to start. Um, and then I also went online, and way back in the day, Maggie Stiefvater used to do a critique partner swap on her um, website. So every once in a while, she would offer this critique swap where you could try to find uh, a fellow critiquer, like somebody who might like your work. And so every time she did that, I would get on. And um, I knew I was getting better when my offers for fellow critiquers were getting better. I was getting good people. So um, at that time, I ran into um, Jennifer Baker. And Jennifer Baker is now a senior editor at Amistad um, in Random House. So she and I like swapped work early on. This would have been like 2011-ish. And then I swapped with several other people. And um, one of them is a literary agent, which I didn't know at the time. So what was great about that was there were people who were already in the industry who when they were reading my raw work were saying, yeah, I would like to swap with you. Um, and I swapped with them for a, a good long period of time. Um, and that helped too. So it was reaching out online and it was also doing some things in person. And I continued with the poetry as well. Um, because like I said, What's great about poetry is it's a totally different form, but you're really looking at language. And so that's great as a writer to really pay attention to like the rhythm of language, the way that you pause, because it's in a way a little bit musical. Like when I'm writing, I'm thinking in terms of music, how does it sound to my ear? Um, how do these words sort of come together? And what's the rhythm of that paragraph? Um, and I got that from the poetry. So I would say like all those things really helped. So it's not just like one path. If you're learning to write, you should try to explore like various sides of writing, I would say. Something else I wonder that I think some uh, listeners might benefit from is eight years, you're your you're mom. You're, you're there for the kids. Everyone's used to you being home. You're the, you know, all, all the duties that come into to being the stay-at-home parent, uh, which I have been uh, on and off as well. So I, 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 I know it well and I love it, uh, but but it's a lot. Uh, so <laughs> you make this transition to, I'm a writer. Mommy is writing now. Um, children are still going to have needs. How do you get, how do you set those boundaries and make sure your time is being respected so that you're getting done what you need to do while still being there to do all the, I'm, I'm assuming you don't stop being a mom just because yeah. you're running out. They don't let you, right? <laughs> they never <laughs> let you do that. Um, I would say like when I started actually, um, my kids were, uh, let's see, my oldest was eight and my youngest was four. So there's a four year time span. So 
Um, it worked out in that my youngest would go to preschool. She just started that year. So I'd get about a two hour window in there where she was at preschool and my other daughter was in kindergarten. Well, actually she would have been past kindergarten at that point, but she was in elementary school. So they were at school for a period of time. And, and that was how I got it done because up until that point, it was much more difficult. I would write at night um, if I if I were writing. But when I joined my group and did all of that, my husband took over the nights that I went to group. And then I would write for that two-hour window in the daytime before my daughter was done with preschool. Um, and I had taken everybody back and forth to like either elementary school or preschool or whatever. I was doing a lot of carpooling. So I had about two hours during the day. Um, and then I would do the mom thing. And then when they started to get close to bedtime, then I would duck out and do late night writing as well. And then a couple of times my husband had daddy-daughter weekends where he would take them off for a couple of days and I'd have the house to myself for like two days and I would just like intensively work over those two days to try to catch up and, and get further ahead. So we kind of did this piecemeal like when I could get to it. But with parenting, it's always sort of up in the air. And I will say like my kids now, I have a 20-year-old and a 16-year-old. And there are different challenges and they still want your attention. Like that doesn't ever change. So right now I'm on deadline and I told them this week, I'm like, I'm on deadline. I'm going to be in my, my, in my writing cave a lot. Like, unless it's an emergency, don't, don't bother me in this moment. Like I'll help you with whatever I can, but I'm, I'm kind of off duty and your dad is on duty. And still, still people are at the door, like knock, knock. I have a crisis. I have a problem. There's this thing. So I think as a parent, you just have to get used to the interruption. And then um, when you can find time to have uninterrupted time, use it to like the nth degree, to the max. And that's what I do. I try to utilize that time as much as possible. Now it's very structured. My kids are, you know, my youngest is still in school. She's a junior in high school. And so I drop her off in the mornings and then I write and then I pick her up in the afternoon. And my older daughter is... Um, a concert photographer she takes pictures of musicians and rock stars and so she's kind of all over the place and her her schedule's all over the place um and sometimes i'll be traveling with her um because some of her venues are like a little more sketchy like she's doing bars at night doing concerts and things and as a 20 year old kid even though she's older i always feel weird about her doing that on her own so um i always call myself instead of a soccer mom i'm a bar mom <laughs> And I go with her to the bar and she does the event and I'll be in the car writing or, you know, at the McDonald's that's close by writing. And then uh, I'll pick her up and we'll, we'll drive home together. So she's not walking outside like late at night. So I'm still doing the late at night thing, just in a different place usually. <laughs> well, what a perfect uh, partner for her to, to have going along as somebody who is an expert on the, the serial killers and the monsters. Right. <laughs> I would say she hates that because I'm like, you could get abducted this way and this is how this could happen. She's like, okay, you're too paranoid. <laughs> and I have, I am, I've done way too much research. It's, it is bad because you know, like how quickly that can happen, what could happen. And being in Tampa, it's a port city. And so it's, it's it can be kind of dangerous for young girls. So um, I'm probably a little overprotective given the research I do. <laughs> yeah, but if you're in the, uh, you know, the trunk of a car being taken away, your thought could be, I was not paranoid enough. I definitely should have been more aware. <laughs> And at least they have some methodology to like escape, right? <laughs> they know what to look for. But I'm I'm that mom who's always like, watch your drink, watch your <laughs> all of those things. I have a long laundry list of things that I always uh, tell her when she's on her way out the door. <laughs> well, when you uh, when you when you dive into this sort of subject matter on, on a regular basis, and we're we're to talk more about Flight 171, which is available uh, probably now as you're listening to us, esteemed audience, but releases October 4th. Uh, so it's either available for pre-order as you're listening to us, or you can just go get it. 
Um, so you're 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 writing about the scarier stuff of the world. Um, how do you approach horror and 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 monsters without letting that bleed in, without letting that uh, make you jaded and cynical? You know, I don't know if I'll ever get jaded or cynical. I'll I'll tell you, I'm I'm like the world's biggest scaredy cat, honest to God. Like I'm that person that I I have 15 fears all the time working. If I'm in a bathroom, I check behind the shower curtain. If I go in my room, I'm always thinking that something's under the bed and like never will any part of me be hanging out from under covers. Um, I'm paranoid. So I don't know if I'll ever get jaded. I think horror is how I work through my own fears. Um, how would I deal with the situation? But no matter where I am, I'm always thinking of like worst worst case and sometimes the most preposterous like things. So my husband, for instance, uh, goes to bed earlier than I do. So I'm always going in late at night um, to bed after him. And he'll tell you no lie. I always check to make sure it's him, which is just ridiculous. But there's a sliding glass door in our bedroom and I'm like, what if someone broke in? And when I was younger, way, way back, there was a movie, where you know babysitter was watching children and the, the killer was in the house and he was sort of terrorizing her and um that movie sort of traumatized me so from that point i always like check doors to make sure everything's locked and my husband will say like i like nudge him to make sure it's him because it could be a, somebody who broke in it could be a zombie that's how ridiculous my brain is <laughs> I'm like i'm not gonna lay down if you've got some kind of zombie thing going on over there <laughs> So it's, it is totally irrational and I get that, but I still do it. <laughs> so I don't think I'll ever be jaded. I think if anything, like it just helps me be more um, brave in my own life. Like I know that I, I work through these things mentally and on some level, I think I've convinced myself that if I write about it, it won't happen to me. So. <laughs> you know, my, my wife and I got a new bed, uh, I don't know, maybe a month ago and it's been wonderful. I'm so well rested, uh, yeah. but it has a, uh, um, uh, drawers underneath it it goes all the way to the floor so for the first time in my life I just get out of bed I don't feel the need to reach my foot way over so no hands can grab out reach out for my so great <laughs> no relief right <laughs> one last thing I'm still going to check the shower curtain when I get to the bathroom but by god when I get out of bed worry free <laughs> yeah, there you go I need to get one of those I have looked into that actually I have looked into that but um I have this other added layer like my husband um, suffers from night terrors so like when I come to bed late, a lot of times he'll have dreams where he thinks he'll wake up thinking someone's at the end of the bed and see something. And it's part of his night terrors. So his way of coping with that is like to tack, like to, to go at whatever it is, like he'll confront it, attack it, whatever, even though nothing's there. It's just his brain is not fully awake yet. So he really thinks something is. So when I'm going to bed, the other thing that can happen too, is if he's in the midst of that, I'm always scared he'll tackle me in the middle of the night because he'll think that I'm one of those shadow things that he dreams about. And so when I'm coming out, if I hear him stirring, I'm like, it's just me. It's just me. (laughs) Don't tackle me in the middle of the night. But he has been known to like throw me off the bed going like there's bugs, there's spiders, like, and, and, you know, kind of crawling around the bed trying to find them Um, and has done that, you know, more than one time. So all of these things probably lend themselves to me being horror writer because sleep is always sort of this tenuous thing in our household. <laughs> you need to get like a poking stick just right. to keep him back a little bit. Of <laughs> yeah, I need like, you know, pillows down on the floor in case he throws me off in the middle of the night, this kind of thing. So <laughs> safety and it's like for trapeze artists right. on the side of the <laughs> have you uh, Have you always been a fan of horror? Always. Yeah. I think 
from the time I was really little. And that probably stems from my dad used to watch a lot of horror films when I was younger. Um, and I can remember sitting down and watching like American Werewolf in London with him when I was really little and then um, Nightmare on Elm Street. And he would never get scared. And I would sit next to him like, ah. <laughs> and I'm watching it trying to play like I'm not scared. And then that night I'd be in bed like, oh, <laughs> I'm up all night. But for whatever reason, um, I kind of I think I'm a little addicted to the thrill of that, of being scared. Um, I enjoy it. Uh, so, you know, there is that, but yes, I've always liked horror. I think I found Stephen King when I was in middle school, um, and was really shy and we'd hide out in the library rather than socialize and, uh, picked up his short stories and was just hooked from that point on. But before him, it was Benicula, which was like this vampire bunny story when I was little, there was always some kind of story like that, that I was attracted to, um, from an early age. And I can't really explain it. It's just something I've always liked. So. Well, I mean, theoretically, when you, I, I'm a horror author, I'm, I'm with you, I love horror, I uh, adore it very much, um, but I like that that gives me a focal point for my fears that are otherwise um, not, not localized, it's just vague things like, what if I get a disease, what if the economy <laughs> takes a turn, what if there's a civil war, all this stuff that I really can't control, but if you let me focus on the bunny, is it going to drain the, 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 the juice from my carrots, well now there's a nice thing, I can, I, I can fight a bunny. <laughs> True, and you know, it's so funny because people in COVID, like, I think they either went to, like, rom-coms or horror, and I totally embraced not that I don't, I always was into horror, but it's almost like I went even deeper during that time period. And I think it's probably, you're right, a lot of that because it just helps me cope. It helps me cope to kind of work through scenarios and to watch somebody on a screen or whatever, and then to leave it there. Um, so I think you work through a lot of that angst. You're right, like anxiety. So I probably have some kind of latent anxiety that I haven't necessarily treated that horror sort of is my therapy for. <laughs> Well, you mentioned that you're extra paranoid if you're at the bar or whatever, and you're thinking about all the different things that could happen. Have you tried not reading horror for a while to see if that intensifies? You know, I haven't actually done that. Um, I'll be honest. I think it would be hard for me because all of the entertainment I'm attracted to sort of runs in that vein. Um, but I should try that. That would be an interesting experience, like an experiment, I think, to see uh, how that would go. Um, yeah, maybe I will. Maybe I'll try that. <laughs> see, But the thing is, I'm like not the type of person who will get into a rom-com. I always tell my friends, like, romance drives me crazy. And I I have all this respect for romance writers, but I, I can't. I'm like, if I'm going to read romance, it needs to end tragically. And that's terrible. I don't know what that says. <laughs> if it doesn't have a Titanic kind of ending, I'm just not into it. <laughs> so. Well, it's not final. It always ends at, like, the easiest part. Not not always, but frequently, like, oh, you, you've achieved total love. Great. Let me come back 10 years and see how you're keeping things fresh. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> how have you learned to put up with your, your your new partner's idiosyncrasies? I don't care about the romantic horse, uh, horse ride. Let me know when you find toenails that are on the bathroom counter. How do you deal with that? <laughs> and that, to me, that is some true horror right there. <laughs> if I find that on my countertop, I'm horrified. <laughs> 
let me just uh, go to this is this, this is a spoiler for for a very old show but i'm an old man and i used to watch friends as did most of the nation and they were forever trying to sell us on ross and rachel will they get together in the first few seasons i was into it will it happen will it happen but by the time they get spoiler by the time they get to the finale and he races to the airport to meet her and they're trying to convince us this is the time like no i have watched them get together and break up eight or nine times over the course of this show there's no way that's going to work out i'm not buying it <laughs> so it's not, it's not a satisfying ending whereas with horror one of them is dead that's a final ending i know for sure how that story goes now. yeah and i don't know what it says about me but some of the best the ones i like the most are the ones that like they almost haunt you afterwards so um you know stephen king's story the myth that the mist movie haunted me but i love that movie. i think it's brilliantly done that ending to me is one of the best horror endings ever bar none that the mist and i will show like everyone i know i always like you have to watch this and my brother when i made him watch it he was like why did you make me watch this, this is terrible i'm like because it's amazing <laughs> he's like he doesn't get it but yeah i i think i have a thing for that i i guess because of the realism but also i like the it's it's that you know horror can elicit a strong emotion out of you and so i think maybe that's what i'm always looking for when i'm you know consuming entertainment so I'm a huge fan of, of both uh, the novella and the um, and the movie. I thought the novella was great originally and didn't see the ending switch on the movie coming. But when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's better. That's yeah. like a breath of fresh air. <laughs> I saw that. Uh, true story. My, my wife and I got engaged the night we saw The Mist. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't planned. It was just we were talking and I had planned to propose later. It's just like, ah, we just happened to get engaged that night. And then I went and I stood in line for uh, a Nintendo Wii at midnight and got it. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful night. It was, it was like a roller coaster of things. And a Nintendo. Oh, my God. Um, but yes, that ending is like, we never get this. It never ends this way. And it's so nice. Not every time, but just once in a while. And yeah, it makes exactly. me pay attention to both Stephen King's work and uh, the director, Frank Darabont, a little bit close in the future, because I know they'll shoot the hostage if they're holding if they're if they're holding uh, my yeah. beloved character ransom. I know they'll do it sometimes. And I feel like horror writers have to do that to establish that credibility to, to keep me in suspense like that. Agreed. And I love the freedom of it. So as a horror writer, you really don't have the same constraints that other stories have. So romance, people like a happy ending. Um, and you don't necessarily have to do that. In horror, you're you're looking to shock people here and there. And so I, I do like that part, too. So well, let's, uh, what's, what's your favorite Stephen King story? Is it The Mist? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's hard for me to pinpoint because I love his work so much. I think he's like one of my primary inspiration. I mean, probably every horror writer says that, right? Um, I really love Pet Cemetery. Uh, I, I love it. I don't, I think because of the parental, like it's such a, a normal fear, that whole idea of your kid running out into a road and you losing your child. And to me, like that's, there's no other grief that's quite as visceral as that. Um, and that, that's that fear. And then this idea that you, you, you can bring someone back, but it's not them. Um, I love that idea too. And so, um, there's a lot about that story. I really, really like, um, you know, there's things about it that are really strange, but there's some prose in it that I think are just, it's like beautifully written in parts. There's the part at the end where they're on the bike and the way that he described it and the way that he wrote the the, the words, it's, it's, it is musical to me, like right at the end. So I really like those. Um, but you know, when I started, I read a short story called Grandma. <laughs> that one stays with me forever because honestly, like I had an, a, a, a great grandmother when I was a kid who was blind and bedridden. 
and she scared me so bad when I was little. She'd want you to come up to the bed and she'd want to feel your face and feel your, she couldn't see. But when you're really young, it's really disconcerting and scary. She was like a very large woman in this bed and like, you know, blind. And I remember being really terrified. So when I read his story, it sort of validated that fear for me. Like, oh, it's okay. Because you know what? People are scared of older people sometimes. Um, and so actually that that was one of the inspirations for Flight 171 because my my monster is sort of inhabiting the body of an older lady who's deteriorating. So, but that, that short story is probably one of my favorites too. I will always remember it. It was the first thing I read of his and it just really stuck with me. Well, let's um, let's talk about um, uh, about about your horror. So, when you write your first book, you start. I'm assuming you don't know it's terrible when you're writing. You 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 think it's going to be great, and then it's not until later it, with um, uh, uh, with being able to look back on it and realize, hey, you know what? It did its job. I got started. <laughs> so <laughs> I had a couple of those. Um, were you were you always thinking I will write horror when you that was the first decision or is it something you came to once you started writing? I think it's something I came to and really like Flight 171 is my first book that really dips a, a bigger toe into horror. I mean I think Gated was kind of in the realm um, so it started there because uh, my my very first book like I said was sort of this romancy twilighty sort of thing which is just absolutely not me. I don't even really read in that realm. Um, but I was kind of going off of what was happening at the time. Um, so it was the second book, I would say, that probably like the hints of what I was going to do later were really there. Because Gated is about uh, an apocalyptic cult. And it's really about this young girl who's grown up in this cult 100 miles from the closest town. Everyone's convinced the world's going to end. And it's really that last little bit of time leading up to them sealing themselves underground to survive uh, the apocalypse. So um, there is some horror with that book. It, it's mostly thriller. It's mostly sort of a suspense. But I would say, like, um, that was when I realized I was maybe going to probably go more in that darker vein. Because when I have ideas, they tend to be in that area just naturally. So the first book, I was sort of putting together a bunch of things that I was emulating. But it wasn't really an idea, necessarily. It was more like, I think people like this romantic stuff. I think they like these other worlds. Let me kind of combine fantasy and romance in a twilighty kind of way, but without vampires. Um, and it, it just it fell flat because I wasn't passionate. But as soon as I had the idea about this girl growing up in a doomsday cult, around the time that the Mayan apocalypse was going to happen, um, it fed into my own thing of like, how weird is it that people really fall for this and like go in 100%. Um, and it mixed with the creepiness of I live in Tampa. And um, I used to take my daughter to the Clearwater Library for story time. And that's right near the Scientology headquarters. And so there would be times when you're going to the library, and you would see these people walking like en masse down the street in white shirts, black pants, like all the same clothes very strange and they're Scientologists. So I always found that like really disconcerting. So kind of hit that. And I think it's because those are the things I notice. Like I notice the darker side of things all the time. And maybe that has something to do with my upbringing. <laughs> I'm, uh, I come from like evangelical people who are constantly like, you know, scaring me with stories of, of end times and resurrection and all of this thing about how you're going to be left behind. And so maybe from a very young age, that's sort of been instilled in me, this idea of having, you know, this constant fear of something going horribly wrong. Um, because, you know, in that in that space, you're always told, if you don't believe enough, you might get left behind, like, it's gonna be really horrible, like there was that piece. So I think um, I was maybe always fascinated 
um, with that darker side because that was kind of dark. Like when looking back, it's a little bit weird that you tell a kid who's under 10, like you might get left behind and all your family goes up to heaven. You get stuck here because you're a sinner and you messed up. There's something kind of traumatizing about that. So um, probably that had the like led into my my interest in horror. And, and when I started looking at the, the apocalyptic cult, um, that was partly me dealing with some of that stuff from my background um, and trying to figure out what I thought about religion and what I thought about uh, how people teach religion to one another and what it's like to be a kid in a situation where you're sort of doubting some of the things you've been told um, but you don't know what to do with those doubts and and that felt like me because it was true to my own experience so um, that started it but I think I was always destined because like I said I was watching horror movies as a little kid and I remember staying up all night watching uh, the clock in the walls there was a really old version of that like way back in the 70s and i watched it and stayed up all night and i was probably in like second grade at the time <laughs> and that was maybe the one i could remember but I, I feel like maybe that was always going to be um the path i took so once i had those ideas i never looked back because it was so natural like my ideas just that's where they come from they come from that well i also have a religious upbringing and i think that that really fed into it and then looking back it's not it's no longer the stories about hell and and being burning that scare me it's you told that to a child you sat me down and and they <laughs> imagined everybody i love being separated and yes. tortured because of whether we were going to do this or not and then of course i look at the news and i say oh there's there's the christian flag raiding the capital oh there was a horror story all along there it just wasn't the one that was official right I mean, I can remember sitting in a group watching a film in, in church, and it was a film where, you know, the rapture was called, so everybody's taken up with the rapture, but you're left behind because you did something wrong, and somehow, you know, God didn't accept you for the rapture, so now you're stuck on earth, and you have to die this martyr's death, and it literally was showing teenagers being, like, like hung. <laughs> I remember watching this thinking, oh my gosh, if I sin and I mess up and I get stuck here, I'm going to be hung. Like I'm going to have a martyr's death. This is terrible. And like literally being so nervous, like that scared me almost worse than horror movies did. Um, and so, and then trying to make sense of it because it felt real. So, you know, when, when your adults around you are telling you that's absolutely a possibility. And then every Sunday they're like, are you sure you're okay? Maybe you should come up and recommit because you might not be. And I would be up at the altar like, every week like i better go just to make sure <laughs> because what if this week i don't go up there and then things go down <laughs> so <laughs> you're like a, a car horn or something in the background like wait was that the trumpet yes. is this the start of <laughs> let me pray really quick i gotta get myself right <laughs> so <laughs> I have active thoughts about it's too bad I'm not going to grow up. There's so much to learn and love. It's it's too bad that's never going to happen. The end of the world's going to going to occur first. Exactly. Like you're kind of told that, and you oh, and I remember thinking like I just want to get married and have kids. Like I hope I make it that long. <laughs> like, and you don't know. Like the way that it's presented, you don't know. And I don't think they thought they were being like being damaging, but it just it does when you kind of grow up under that thing. There there's a certain amount of you know constant fear that you're sort of living with um that's you know you have to sort of reconcile with yourself as you get older and you start to realize like what that really was and and how it you know it, it wasn't truthful necessarily it was just everybody was kind of under the sway of this idea so and the left behind series i think kind of led into that that was really popular when we were younger it was like such a, a big selling book and widespread and that sort of you know didn't glamorize it but it made it into this like movie and this thing and, and it felt i think really realistic to a lot of people so yeah, no, I uh, read the whole series. Was greatly impressed. Got <laughs> uh, Kurt Cameron, the big, the big star. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was back in the day when, you know, growing pains was, you know, we all knew him from that stuff. So, um, so yeah, so I, there, there is some of that. And I think, you know, there's a lot of us, I think in horror, so that just probably tells you something. <laughs> <laughs> there are some good sides too. I, I, I never tried to, you know, I was, I was, I was trying to mention, Hey, there was also a real sense of community. There were lots yes. of nice meals that people prepared for me. There was genuine care and concern from neighbors. There are parts of a religious community that I miss greatly. Uh, but on the whole, I think, <laughs> I think there's a lot of danger there. Well, and that's what makes it confusing, right? But that also, I think, works as a writer because you realize, like, things that are, are bad or scary, like, it's so complicated because it can come from people who are really genuinely trying to do something good, right? So the people around me, I never felt like they were trying to scare me on purpose or traumatize me on purpose. They really thought they were doing good by saying what they were saying, like 100%. They, they, these were not people trying to be nefarious or, uh, you know, abusive or whatever. I mean, in their hearts, they were thinking... This is, I'm telling you the right thing. I'm trying to help you. Um, and that's what I find endlessly fascinating about anything that's horrific is that the, it's complex. There are pieces that don't really match up to the horrific part. And you see that with like, you know, serial killers, for instance, this idea that they have families and, you know, they can be a father to a child and then turn around and do these grotesque things. And the child is unaware of this other part of their, their parent. And, and the fact that those things can coexist in a person, you know, I think I will always be fascinated because I don't know we'll ever answer the question of why that is, you know, no matter how long we explore it. No, if you genuinely believe that a child's going to go to hell if you don't give them the good news and write this minute, you would be a monster not to do it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So you can't fault them necessarily. Where I feel bad is for the people that, you know, never really come out of that. So, you know, it just kind of propagates it. And and I, I am a person of faith, so it's not like I've given up faith entirely. It's just there are aspects of religion that I, I have some struggle with. <laughs> so. Well, and it's, um, it's, I, I'm also a person of faith, um, although not specific. And I'm, I'm, I've just given up on the idea that one day I'll understand. No, I'm, I'm pretty, <laughs> I get that's not going to happen. I'll, I'll, I'll maybe, you know, a greater, a little slightly greater understanding that I have now. But even once, uh, assuming that we die and there's an afterlife, I still don't expect to have all the answers. Like, you just got here, bro. <laughs> You're going to have to but I do find that there are layers that um, I've just accepted that I'm never going to peel all of that early training away because it's just so foundational that it bleeds over into every other. It's like racism in that way. I'm forever finding, so, oh, that was also racism from childhood. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, and you just, it's, you, when you identify it, you try to isolate it, put it aside, say, nope, I'm an adult now. I'm making the decisions. I don't want that. But yeah. it's just there. It's true. And, and like I said, I think in my work, you know, if anybody looks at the body of my work, they'll see that I'm constantly questioning, you know, this idea of like, how do you know what truth is? What is that truth? And what, um, what is your morality? Like, what is it? What are your principles and ethics? And what are you going to stand up for? And, and can you do that in the face of a lot of people opposing what you think? Um, and so like, I think Gaiden and Astray specifically, my first two books were a lot about that. Um, Smash or Grab, not so much. That was kind of a departure in a different direction. But Flight 171 is very much a study in how people behave under a horrible circumstance and um, what you're, what, you know, when you're in a situation that's life and death, um, how you treat others and also how you judge others um, who've, who've messed up, who have, you know, in this book, there's kids that have committed um, 
they've done bad things. And um, I give guess us the, official, the official summary. We're 46 minutes in here. We haven't really talked about <laughs> the book, but 171 available now. Uh, what, what does the Steve audience need to know? Okay, so Flight 171 is about um, a girl who has recently lost her twin sister to a hit and run accident and um, has no idea who, who committed the crime, but has been searching for this person. Um, she needs to move on. There's a senior class ski trip coming up and she is uh, going on um, the trip for the first time without her sister, traveling with her, her friends and trying to start fresh. Um, but when she gets on the plane, there is this older woman on the plane um, who, is actually an ancient creature in disguise that has possessed this woman and has lived in her body for a long period of time but now this body is giving out and in order for the creature to keep living it has to find a new host body so um once the plane is taken off it, this creature puts all of the other passengers asleep except for the kids from this senior class trip and um, basically offers them a decision. They have to pick one of their own to sacrifice to become this new body for this creature to possess, or she'll crash the plane and everyone dies. So um, they have the, the course of the flight to choose this person that they're going to sacrifice. And um, as they're trying to choose, the creature uses the in-flight entertainment system to show all of the secret sins of everybody on board. So every person, every kid that's on board has something they're hiding. And so she starts playing um, footage of each of those sins and then that will hopefully spur the kids into choosing so they're really trying to choose who's the most deserving to lose their life to this creature um, within four hours so that's the premise of the book this is very much uh i got a got morality built right into it it's almost like the you know the trolley problem do you divert the trolley to save this person or like yeah. So when you sit down to, to write the setup of this, does this come to you all already worked out? This is the scenario? Or do you start with Devin gets on the plane and let's see what happens? I know you're a bit of a plotter. What do you start with when you when you approach a story like this? I'm a compulsive plotter. So <laughs> this is where Lucian and I always diverge. Like so for me, it's always scenario first. And then I build characters and do all of that stuff. So um this particular book was different from any other book I've written in that um, when it came about, um, I had been in a dry spell as a writer. So I remember that like my book deal came really fast. And so I had three books quickly in succession, 2013, the first came out, 2014, the second came out. And then I think it was 2016, my third book came out. Um, and I was a very unseasoned writer because I'd only had two years of experience. So I really didn't know what I was doing and I was struggling. So every book that came, it was getting harder for me. And that was reflected, honestly, in my book sales and the way that the books were received. Like, they were good. I don't think that they were bad books, but I just didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and it was really hard for me to write them. So I went through a period from 2016 until um, 2000 and 20, like 20, somewhere in there, where I, I wrote books and they didn't sell. So I had a really long dry spell. Um, but around the time of like 2020, 2021, I think, um, Wendy Loja from Delacorte Press with Random House put out a tweet asking for books for this paperback series. Um, it was either romance or horror and thriller, and uh, she wanted proposals. And she was open to those, and she had just like put out this tweet, and everybody was kind of talking about it. And so um, normally an idea will just come to me somewhere. I'll have this idea, and I'll know it's good because I, I just have this like need to write it. I'll get really excited about it. Um, but I saw this tweet first, and I was kind of writing a horror novel that I was calling The Haunt, and it wasn't working very well. Like I had, I was in the midst of revising it, but I, I wasn't sure um, 
if I had really nailed it yet. And when that came in, um, I started looking at the underlined line of books, and one of them was very similar in premise to the haunt that I was writing. So I knew, okay, I can't propose that book. I've got to come up with something else. And I need to do it quickly because everybody's probably already putting proposals in her inbox. So um, in this one particular case, I was extremely strategic. And I looked at their horror thriller line in general, like what are they already have and what are they maybe missing? And I thought they're missing some things with like a supernatural element. Um, and it's a fast paced line, like the books are really quick and the, the plots have to be really quick and, and um, high stakes. So I started thinking about like, what could I write? And as a Stephen King fan, I was thinking like, what's some things that I liked that really spoke to me, but I could like parlay, like take a little bit of inspiration from a couple of areas and then maybe cobble something together that's my own. And um, Stephen King's Storm of the Century uh, is an old television miniseries that used to be on. He wrote it specifically for television. It wasn't ever a book. Um, I think they've made the script into a book now, but um, I always loved that. And that was this idea of sacrificing one of your children. And it was parents choosing. And so I thought, I love this idea of choosing a sacrifice. So what if I had kids who had friends and, and they had to pick one of their own to sacrifice? And that was kind of the kernel. And I've also had this thing with uh, Final Destination. I love those movies. Um, and of course, I think anybody who's seen the first Final Destination and that plane crash and like how scary that is, I think about that every time I get on a plane. So I thought, interesting, like, wouldn't it be interesting if you had to do something like that, but you were stuck in one place where you couldn't get away and you had to choose and you had a very limited time to do it. And so I took those two things, this idea of a plane, this idea of a sacrifice, and I put them together. And then from there, things grew. But I would have never planned this originally because let me tell you, making an entire book on a plane is very difficult. <laughs> it doesn't give you a lot of like room for different places for them to go. There's only so many places they can realistically go. So, uh, you know, had I had I thought about that a little harder, maybe I would have switched where she was or, you know, decided on uh, a slightly different locked room kind of situation. So for me, it's always a uh, plot. And I pitched that plot. I think I wrote that proposal in like a week, uh, maybe a week and a half, and um, they offered on it. And then I wrote the book on proposal. So it was it was a, a totally different kind of situation, but it works for me because I, I, I am 100% a plotter. I'm going to turn my screen. You can kind of see I have all these boards. <laughs> there's four of them. So you can kind of see there's three of them. And those are all of my um, storyboards. <laughs> so I am like that whole crime scene detective with the spaghetti string. That is me. I have everything on the board. I like do an extensive like 60 page outline before I ever start writing the book. So. <laughs> I have deep board envy. This is you want to be watching us on YouTube this time, esteemed audience. You want to see these boards. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I don't show them up too close because now I'm on another book and like all the secrets are on that board, right? <laughs> <laughs> when you heard it here, esteemed audience, try and magnify the screen as close as you can. <laughs> so, so, uh, curious. I want to talk more about your your plotting process, but 2016 to 2021. You stalling out a little bit. Got to figure out what you're going to do next. Thankfully, the world is very calm. There's no news that might have caught right. you or, or bummed you out whatsoever. How do you keep your faith going during that difficult time that you're you're going to get the book? Flight 171 is going to happen. You're going to be on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. My God, happiness will come again. What 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 keeps you going during those times? Well, you know. Um... I think that's when you know you're a writer, honestly. Um, those are the times where you, you, you really test that theory, like how serious am I about this? 
because um, there were there were no like encouraging things that were letting me know, yeah, you're going to be able to keep making this a career. Um, I had stalled out. I had stalled out sort of spectacularly. So my last book sold very little and it was really disheartening. And I had another project that I had been hired to do and it totally fell through. And I was feeling like big time failure. And of course, at that time, you're right, like the world is on fire. And then I have like preteens who are on fire. <laughs> so it felt like everything in my life was kind of crazy. And um, I just sort of, I had a book on sub at the time. And I, I asked my agent to pull it because I felt like it wasn't what it should be. And I started to think about it. And I'm like, I need to get back down to brass tacks. Um, I didn't have enough time to really hone my craft before I started this. I need to figure out how to get so good that people can't ignore me. And I think Steve Martin's the person who said that, but it is literally getting the quality of your work to a place where, you know, they can't ignore it. You've gotten so good that they can't ignore it. Somebody is going to take it. So um, I knew I had a lot of studying to do. And so what I did was I sort of um, created my own writing study program, but I made it holistic because at the time, like I said, my confidence was really shook. Um, I was kind of struggling with like, feeling burnt out, feeling a little, you know, frustrated. And um, so I kind of came up with like um, several areas of development in my life and I formulated like a plan. So I had, you know, professional goals and educational goals. And then I had um, personal development goals and then um, relationship goals. So those things with family and then household. And so I had like all different ones and education. I don't know if I said that education. Um, so I kind of made a plan and every year I, I would pick a word for the year that was like kind of my focus word. And then I would devise my educational plan and I started like studying books. So I picked all the authors I admired the most. And uh, every month I would deep study one of those writers books. So like I did it with Stephen King. I did it with Pet Cemetery actually. Um, I did it with Paul Tremblay has Head Full of Ghosts, which will forever be one of my favorites. So I picked that book apart, but I would literally write notes um, and book lovers are going to hate this, but I wrote them in the book. Like I wrote in the book, I highlighted things in the book. I tore it apart for me. Um, and so I did that. And then I, I watched the copy. Yeah, it's my copy. So I'm like, and as a writer, honestly, I don't mind if somebody dog ears a book because if it means they read it a lot and it's well loved, then that's a great thing. It's like the Velveteen Rabbit. Like, I know you love this book if it's well worn. So that's not a bad thing. Um, so I did a lot of book study and then I took a lot of classes. I joined the master class and took every single writing class they had. Um, and I've done that for years. Like I still have master class and I take the acting classes and I take the director's classes and I take the writer's classes and I take notes um, because I think all of those things lend themselves to you being a good writer, knowing character development from actors and their point of view and knowing directors and how they block and stage also helps with scene setting. So. I did all of those things. Um, and then I read a lot of nonfiction as well, like a lot of like self-improvement stuff. I revamped my schedule. I um, figured out how to organize my office better. So it was a lot of like little goals. And because I couldn't control people picking up my writing, I could control my own progress. So I would set writing deadlines for myself. I wrote into the void and wrote several manuscripts and then I would send it to my agent. She'd be like, it's good. The market's kind of crazy right now. I'm not sure that it's going to sell, but we'll try. And, you know, of course they didn't. Um, but my work was getting better. And I think arguably, you know, everybody would tell you that it was getting better. And I also um, had a couple of author friends going through something similar and we sort of formed our own um, peer group and we committed to meeting once a month 
Um, and we've been doing it for, I think, that entire time for about six years. We meet once a month and we do like a, a day where we talk out our ideas. We talk about the industry and um, we just help each other get better. And we read each other's work and we challenge each other. And so those things really helped me. Um, and I got more in control of my my profession. I think I, I needed to become more professional and that's how I did it. And also more confident and i needed to also find like my love of writing and the only way to do that was to start embracing the process because you have no power over the outcome i have the power over writing the book and then i have to set it free and then i see what happens um, but i have no control over whether readers like it whether an agent will love it whether a publisher will like it and pick it up uh, so I have to embrace that day to day because at the end of the day, 95% of my time as a writer is in this room at this desk writing stories. And if I don't love that process, regardless of what happens after, then I'm in the wrong profession. And so I really kind of learned how to get into where I like the steps of it. I like the sitting down and writing the story and the coming up with the story more than I actually am invested in the outcome. And, and I think that's the key. So. Oh, here I am. I'm talking to you in 2022. Thank God, all the all the unpleasantness and unfortunateness is gone forever. We don't need to worry about about the stress of the world. We hope, right? And, uh, <laughs> the height of your 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 powers, uh, having having I assume uh, worked worked everything out. It's all going perfect now. Uh, I know you're on deadline and 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 being very generous with your time while on deadline, which I appreciate. What does your workday look like now? Uh, to keep that to keep that fun and engaging and, and, and focused on the part you can control? Um, I still drop my daughter off. She still has doesn't have her driver's license. So we're working on that, my younger one. So um, I get up and uh, first thing I do is like take care of household stuff. And um, I set my intention for the day. So I like make a to-do list. These are the big things I have to do today and consult my calendar and all that. And then I take her to school. And then when I get back, um, that's the time when I sit down to start writing. Uh, and usually I write for, um, that's by the time I get home and I'm in my chair, it'll be about nine o'clock and I'm in my chair from nine until like 1230 ish. And in that time, like I'll take five to 10 minute breaks. Like I'll do a writing session for 45 to 50 minutes, take a little break. I now have like a, a standing desk that like moves up and down. I have a treadmill that I put under my desk and I have a, a rebounder trampoline and all of those things are just to keep me from seizing up. Because if you sit in a chair too long, your body just gets like, you know, your muscles get tense, your back hurts. So I try to like keep myself from having that problem. So um, I've incorporated kind of like these wellness things to my day. And that really, really helps because it keeps you, um, your stamina up so I can stay longer. So about 1230, I'll, I'll take a, a, a quick break for lunch. And then I go back in for like another hour and a half before I pick up my daughter. Then I pick her up and bring her home and then in the afternoon is usually when I do like housekeeping stuff so that'll be emails and you know answering people um, with requests and things that I need to do marketing stuff um, things of that nature because by then my brain is sort of my story brain is fried at that point so I have to switch over and I do like sort of the business side of things and that's when I get on the treadmill and I'll like walk while I take care of the housekeeping stuff and then I go to the gym most of the time um, to do weight training and uh, after that, like it's nighttime and family time. And then I read in the evenings is when I'll do my reading, so. Okay, so the treadmill desk, that's not for, for the most part, that's not for getting your novel down. That's for when you're checking email and every, everything okay. else. I can't, I've tried to write like when I'm on the treadmill, but it's too hard. Even like with the treadmill going really slow, 
like I have trouble typing and walking at the same time. Is that like, I guess I'm a writer. I'm not super coordinated. I think there's a lot of us that like, I was never an athlete. So um, I don't know if I have the coordination to do it. I've tried. So usually I do um, the treadmill if I'm like taking a Zoom meeting or I'm doing like email, something I can do that's not like a big deal. The writing, I feel like I, I kind of have to be butt in the chair for that. But sometimes I will stand up. I'll stand up and do it. I just can't do the standing, walking, and writing at the same time. So I've fallen over things just thinking about my story, trying to write it while writing a treadmill. Yeah. Where's, the, where's the trampoline coming? Um, it's a rebounder. It's like one of those little mini trampolines. And that I'll do like in those five to 10 minute breaks. I just bounce around on it and like stretch my arms, my legs, and like twist and do that kind of thing. But actually, um, you know, I'm getting older here. Like, let's just be honest. I'm not like old, but I'm like middle-aged, right? So um, I look at it as like, it's it's a good way. Like I did some studying about this and it's a really good way to keep your balance and your stability. So uh, I'm trying to like prepare for the future me because I would like to be writing and working uh, as long as possible. I'm one of these people that like, if I can live to be over hundred and be fully capable and aware, I want to live as long as possible. Right. So the way to do that, because, you know, sitting is, is as detrimental as like smoking when you do it so long and writers tend to be sitting so long. I've made like the health part of it a priority because I don't think I would be able to maintain like productivity and everything else in this business if I didn't pay attention to my health as well. So, gotcha. So you might write for an hour, then let me get five minutes on the trampoline, and then five minute, right, and then I'll get back on. And usually that helps. It just loosens up your 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 limbs and your muscles a little bit, and it also wakes you up because you know sometimes you'll sit at your desk and you're like you get the sleepy <laughs> moments. At least I do. <laughs> no, I've. Uh... My, my wife and I started a, a specific exercise regime uh, last year um, and, and have noticed improvements and have noticed that just the overall difference it makes in cognition, um, yeah. which is important if you're making a living with right. ideas from your head. <laughs> exactly. Our brains are sort of valuable, so we got to treat them right. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if you could just be a brain in the jar and not even worry about the stupid body? Unfortunately, it just doesn't work that way. It would be lovely because, like I said, I'm not an athlete. Like, this is not something naturally. I'm a book person. I like to sit down with a book. I like a cloudy day and rain and, like, snuggle time and all of that. That is much more my thing. But, um, however, that doesn't work. And the older you get, the more you start noticing, like, oh, my body doesn't like this, really. <laughs> like, it needs to move. <laughs> so um, it's it's out of necessity that I do it. But But I will say, like, and now that I'm older, I didn't necessarily like exercising as a younger person, but now I actually really do like it because afterwards I feel so much better. So I don't have the same like tension headaches and all of that stuff that comes from sitting as long as we do. I have discovered a life hack that I'll share for esteemed audience. For those of you who are like me, if you're a sad, sad video game addict, which I absolutely am, I realize I'm never going to give up video games. I love them too much. But what I do have, I have a, um, a step and I put it in front of my PlayStation. And by God, you don't need your feet when you're uh, twiddling your thumbs on the PlayStation controller. So you can step up and down. You can stretch. You can move. You can work up a darn good sweat and still get in an hour, hour and a half. It's it's the easiest exercise I've ever done. You don't notice that it's happening because I'm still focused on Joel and Ellie. Yes, I'm playing The Last of Us again. And I look forward to playing it again on PS6. So you're still having the great time, but you're getting exercise while you do it. It's win-win. 
It is. It really is. And I mean, now they make it easier. I mean, Amazon, all you got to do is get on Amazon and five minutes later, basically, sometimes the same day you have whatever gadget you need to do it. So I, I definitely, same thing. Like I trick myself into the fitness. So that treadmill thing is me tricking myself into like, I still feel productive. I'm still doing what I want to do, but I'm also getting in my steps. <laughs> it was a hang up I had when I was younger. So I'm not going to be an athlete. So who cares? Like, well, it's not like that was like when we're going back to when you're driving, did I die or not? That's those that should not be the standard. That should not be just basic maintenance. <laughs> it's true. And I have the unfortunate luck of being married to a marathon runner. So I feel a certain amount of pressure to keep up my fitness because he is extremely in shape. <laughs> so. That was uh, Mrs. Kent took up yoga during the the pandemic, and I was like, "Oh man, I gotta I gotta step up my game." <laughs> yeah. People look at us; they they already kind of tilt their head a little bit, like he's out of his league. But now it's going to be that much more apparent. I really got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm battling. My husband's always like skewed, younger looking, and I'm like, the last thing I want to do is look like grandma. <laughs> <laughs> like, next to like my young husband they're like what happened there <laughs> um i've got uh so many questions for you uh because I, I watched your if the steam audience is is curious you've got an entire workshop that's online i'll link to it in the show notes where you go through and you break down how you write your scenes the what are the, the scene types in fact before we we start talking ghosts and think about land and this thing because i know you lived in the haunted house tease yes. uh, <laughs> I, uh, you've got some very important, uh, crucial tips about writing strong scenes. Again, there's a whole lot of workshop, but what are the essential elements of a scene? What can you give us just a little taste for free? Well, I'll tell you what, I think what, what most, most writers struggle with, especially early on and what keeps you from getting published is that your scene like has one function, right? So you're, and, and because you're not really sure what a scene is. I, I think when I started, you know, you're kind of like, okay, there's a scenario I'm putting them in, but what is this really supposed to do? So it's sort of identifying like what's the function of the scene, but also thinking like, how can I have multiple functions for every scene? So I'm always looking at um, when I'm outlining, uh, the first thing I look at is um, what are my subplots and my plot? Like what's my main plot? And then I kind of come up with, well, here's some ideas for scenes that kind of go with that main plot. But what are the other subplots that I'm sort of looking into? So whether that's like a, a romantic thing or whether that's like a relationship between a parent and a child or like the side mystery people are taking care of, um, I label those all out. And then I think like, okay, I have these scenes where here's what the general order, the logical order of the first plot, the main plot is. Now, how can I fold in all of these subplots so that every single scene, I'm addressing several things at once. And I'm also looking at what kind of conflict is in the scene. So you need to identify like, is this scene primarily um, sort of like a physical conflict where they're in a state of danger and they're trying to escape something? Or is it an internal conflict where they're addressing something internally, some feeling they have, some moral quandary they need to address? And I'm trying to make sure that I have at least one or the other of those in every scene. And where I can, I'm putting both those things in. And you don't want to overcomplicate because there is that danger too of overcomplicating every single scene. But I do think most people when they're starting out, the scenes are too simplistic and they don't do enough. And people are just sort of wandering around but not having anything really to do. And the more conflict that you can put in there, the more you give them the meat to react, to act, to do things that are going to help propel the scene forward and make it interesting. Um, 
so I would say like you're looking at what setting is going to make this the most interesting scene possible. So how, how can I up that? How, uh, you know, sitting at breakfast, eating breakfast, that's not like an, a very compelling thing unless you put something in there that's really surprising, right? So you're just recognizing like the setting is going to lend itself to the scene. So I'm either going to have to make it really original um, and escapist in some way, or if it's a very mundane thing, how do I twist it so it doesn't feel mundane? Um, so I'm looking at that piece that I'm looking at of the characters that are in the scene, how am I furthering each of those characters somehow? I'm giving some little tidbit of revelation of who this person is in the way that they're reacting to the situation or talking to their person in this scene. Um, so I'm breaking that down. So I will list like, here's all the characters. Here's the things that they're coming into the scene with. Like even my little sub characters, like what, what is their goal in this moment? What are they trying to do? What are they thinking? And I'm kind of putting myself in each head and then writing notes for myself like, okay, there's, these are the things that they would have to say and these are the things that maybe they're doing. Um, but for me, it is, it is multitasking a scene. So how many things can happen and how late can I come into that scene so that um, there's not a lot of preamble, like where I'm just explaining a lot of backstory type stuff before the action takes place. So how can I start with action and have you sort of surmise what's going on through that action and through, you know, the, the character's observation of the setting and, and what, what's happening. So my advice would be when you're writing, you know, of course I'm going to be a proponent of outlining because I think it's really important um, to be able to do that because I, I feel like it's, it's building a house. So if you're not outlining, you're trying to build that house and put up everything, the drywall, the electrical, all of that stuff in your head in real time. And I, I can't do that. There's no way. My brain doesn't work that way. So if I outline, at least I have the scaffolding, I have the, the bones, the structure, and then I can flesh that out um, more easily because I've already sort of laid that out in writing next to me. So I put the little outline next to me and I'm like, okay, here's what they're doing. Now I can add like the, you know, the language and sort of whatever that little, those little things are easier because I'm not having to think of five things at one time as I'm writing in real time. But, um, but I think also people who pants, really their rough draft is an outline. It, it is their brain dumping everything they need to know onto the paper. It's just not an outline form. So it, it's just a more uh, unstructured way of putting together an outline than what I do. Mine is extremely structured, but I'm perfectionistic. And if I don't do that, I crumple. I crumple at a blank page. I need that like guide. But that, that's my advice for setting is that litter for scene setting and for scene building is make sure you're multitasking that scene so that you are um, making it do double and triple duty in terms of your plots and your subplots and your character development. So your outline sounds like is detailed enough that it's almost a first draft. It, it kind of is a first draft in a way. Like sometimes I feel like, did I, did I rewrite the scene? <laughs> it's because I like did. I had, you know, pages for each scene of what they were doing in bullet points. Like, okay, they're doing this, 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 and this. Um, so it is. It's just a different way. It's me tricking myself into a rough draft because um, every writer's different. Um, I have a, a heavy amount of perfectionism, which is fear. <laughs> Because, you know, I'm that the writer who writes in fear, right? I develop stories of fear and then I write in fear. But um, I, I write that so I trick myself into being like, okay, I can do this. Because when I'm writing rough drafts, the sound of it, and, and that's the only way I can describe it, is the sound of it, me typing it and hearing those words in my head, it sounds horrendous. <laughs> like, it just sounds terrible to me. I'm like, this is not singing. There's no music to what I'm writing. This is just dry. And so if I have like that sort of guideline, um, I can trick myself into it. 
and I free up my brain to be able to think of the stuff that will make it sound better to me because I already have sort of the mundane stuff taken care of somewhat. So that might be the most brilliant argument for plotting ahead of time I've ever heard. Could you take <laughs> pressure off the first time? Because it's not, it's not, it's not a first draft. God, no, it's an outline. Exactly. So off that way. <laughs> and then when you go to write your first draft, where well, you're not writing from nothing, you already know what's going to happen. You know, what's going to be said. So the yeah. pressure's off there. Amy Christie Parker, you have you have convinced me to change the way I work. <laughs> I'll take it. I know this is like if I have any kind of like Bible thumping things, it's outlining. <laughs> this would be the equivalent of that for me. I'm like, it's great. <laughs> you might burn in hell. You might not. I don't care. But at least your story is straightened out. Let's do it out. Story's gonna work. <laughs> We kept the esteemed audience waiting long enough. Uh, Amy, Christine, Parker, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? Okay, I have never seen a flying saucer. And when it comes to ghosts, <laughs> you did say I lived in a haunted house and you were right, um, I did. So I never actually saw a ghost. However, <laughs> I definitely felt ghosts and I did see things move and um, and things happen in that house that would that were undeniably weird and inexplicable. Um, but you know, to give you a scene setup, people always say like, "How do people in, in movies move into haunted houses?" Right? Who would ever do that? Well, my family did because <laughs> when we went to rent this home, literally like across the street is a graveyard. <laughs> so, and it's a hundred year old farmhouse that's like kind of dilapidated, right? And um, we moved in like you would think that that would have been all the warning you need like this is maybe not the place to live and it's in pennsylvania and pennsylvania has notoriously got areas that are haunted because of um the you know you've got uh, valley forge there and a lot of historical sites where battles happened and so you know gettysburg places like that so there are parts of pennsylvania that are well known to be haunted right um so you would think they would know because the view from my bedroom window was the graveyard um, and it was a two-story house, and um, I was in, I think, like third grade when we moved in, and it had a lot of land, and there was a big barn in the back, and the thing is, for a kid, it would have been great if it hadn't been haunted, because you had this great big barn in the back, and inside the barn was an old horse-drawn carriage um, sitting in the barn, so like, how cool is that as a kid to play on that? And then there was a secret passageway from the pantry in the kitchen that led upstairs, which was super cool. Um, but in that house, there was always this prevailing feeling of being watched. So all I could say is like, you always felt like someone was staring at you and not in a good way. Like someone was staring at you like they hated you. And I can remember um, at night, I would hear somebody walking up and down the steps, but no one would be in the hallway. So there was always this, like, you'd hear a step, a step, a step, a step, and then you'd go out there and there's no one in the hall. And then um, when I would go to sleep, I had this overwhelming feeling of someone crouched next to my bed inches from my face just staring at me. And so when I would go to bed, I made a deal with myself, like, to keep my eyes closed and not open them till morning because I just didn't want to see whatever it was. I'm like, I can live here if I don't see it. <laughs> which is really kind of crazy. You're like, you can't really defend yourself with your eyes closed, but this was my way of coping. I was in third grade. So um, I would go to sleep and I would close my eyes and I would just like not open them until morning, but I would feel this thing till I would go to sleep, like staring at me close range to my face. And next to my room was the door that led to the attic and it would always uh, bounce on the hinges, like someone was pounding on it, but like there would be no wind, there was no reason for it to do that. And it had like this iron latch that sort of secured it in place. So it was locked. Um, you had to lift the latch to open the door to go upstairs. 
but I can remember walking by one day and it literally swung open on its own with no one there and um no wind it was a sunny day like middle of the afternoon and I had just this overwhelming creepy sensation and I went and hid in my closet and the whole time I thought like I was fully expecting something to creep in there uh with me <laughs> because I could feel this presence is the only way I can describe it but like my brother uh, one night both his bedroom doors were locked we couldn't get in and when we got in, um, finally, we woke him up and we were able to get in. There was a huge piece of plaster from the wall on his pillow that had fallen and, like, just about hit him in the head. And then later, when he was walking out of the barn another day, like, a piece of the barn, the siding, I saw it start to move. And I told him to watch out. And he it literally fell right behind him as he walked out of the barn and, like, narrowly missed him. So we had weird things like that would that would happen. Um, and so that was, like, a constant um, and now, you know, the, the house has actually been destroyed and they built a neighborhood <laughs> over it. So I'd love to know if it's like a poster poltergeisty thing where people are like, there's these weird, we have new homes, but yet <laughs> something's going on. <laughs> so, but yeah, it was really creepy. So we lived there like a year um, and a lot of creepy things happened. And I had relatives who came there and like refused to stay in the house because it was so creepy and like would would stay somewhere else so um it was strange and and that was obviously probably pretty formative to me becoming a horror writer <laughs> i would think that would be informative of a lot of things that was third grade you said that you were living third there grade, yeah <laughs> so do you go forward in life knowing having some knowledge that oh there's there's definitely some kind of afterlife i've seen it i've experienced well you didn't see it you kept your eyes right. closed but i've experienced it i know it's there yeah, I think you do. I mean, I think for a long time, I was not somebody who would want to buy a, a house that was older for that reason, because I'm like, that had a history. And if that happened in that house, it could happen again. I don't want to have that happen again. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people look at it with skepticism, and I think that's healthy. And I would too, if I hadn't been through it, I'd be like, okay, whatever. But um, however, <laughs> having been through it, I know that there was something going on there that wasn't totally explainable. Um, and it was just that dread all the time. And that was really a weird way to live for a period of time because it's just a constant dread you're kind of sitting with. And then, like I said, just things moving, um, that door opening on its own, that feeling of not being alone. Um, there was a room up in the upstairs that we used to put our ironing board in, but there were no, there was no furniture. And that room was just so uh, off-putting that we never put anything in it. And we would, no one ever went in it and we just left it. <laughs> so, uh, and you know, we would run around playing hide and seek. You never, you never went in that room. You would run past it really fast, hoping like whatever was in there was not coming out to get you. So um, yeah, I think I believe a hundred percent because I've had enough unexplainable things happen to me that make me believe it. Um, but I also have a healthy dose of skepticism too. I don't think every place is haunted. I just think some places can be, so. I never understood how the skeptical view is that everybody's wrong. There's no possibility of any kind of ghost. Uh, and therefore, the simplest view is all of humanity is crazy. Do to do, go on about my day. Exactly. <laughs> <Hold on. laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I will say, I'm not one of those horror writers that hopes that, like, someone puts me up in a haunted house, like hotel. Not for me. <laughs> I would rather avoid that. <laughs> I think that's just asking for it. <laughs> right? <laughs> the ghost is reading one of your other books. I'm like, oh, I, I could maybe be acknowledged in the next one. I better, better go after her art. <laughs> Make sure you have a good experience for the, the book I want to read. <laughs> <laughs>
kind of like if people know you're a horror author uh, and and you're like my my cousin runs the biggest or second biggest um, haunted uh, house here in the, the great state of Indiana. Oh, cool. um, it's, it's an award-winning haunted house. It's Fear Farm. Look it up. It's Sabrina Doolin as she goes by, but it was Sabrina Kent. Uh, great haunted house. But they know me there and they know that I write scary stories. So I never go to the Fear Farm. Oh, they're going to totally come after you. <laughs> 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 yeah. I know exactly. Yep, that you're totally target number one. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you in for free. Oh, it'll cost. Nope, it won't. Be free. <laughs> you're gonna try to make me cry, aren't you? <laughs> like, that's what I would be thinking. <laughs> so, Avery Christine Parker, this has been an absolute privilege and a pleasure. I know you're on deadline, and I've, I've taken up a chunk of your morning, but I so appreciate your your making time. Um, the steam rally says that uh, my last question is always some variation. Uh, if you could go back toward the start of your career, middle of your career, wherever would have made the biggest difference and give yourself some advice that, that would have helped you and might help out everybody who's watching or listening to us now. Um, other than don't don't get into a hundred year old house uh, in Pennsylvania. <laughs> what would you like to tell yourself? Oh, gosh, so many things. Um... You know, I think maybe the most important thing is that there's no right journey uh, to being a success in this business, but also know that it's a long journey. Uh, the person who makes it quickly is an anomaly. So if you really go back and you really look at most authors, it's 15 to 20 years of slaving away before anything like really sort of happens for most people. So I think um, that embracing the process advice would be the advice I would give myself. This idea that um, you have to make peace with the fact that there is a lot in this business that you cannot control, that you will not ever be able to control. Whether or not readers like what you're doing at the time that you do it, because timing is part of that, and um, whether or not publishers will market it or like it or buy it or any of those things, there's just a multitude of things that are so wildly out of your control that the only thing you can really focus on and control is making the best story you can. So do everything in your power to be the best writer that you can and the rest of the stuff will fall into place when when it's supposed to um but that process part is that is why you're a writer and if you don't like that part then you're not right for this business so <laughs> that's the note to yeah. uh, where can esteemed audience uh, find you online follow you on social media and all that good stuff uh, I have a website at amychristineparker.com, and then I am on Instagram at amychristineparker, because I can't put the K-E-R on the end, so it's amychristine, and then P-A-R uh, is my handle on Instagram. Um, I'm rarely on Twitter, but sometimes I'm there. You'll get, like, event updates there mostly, and then um, I have a TikTok account, but I'll be honest with you, like, it is the last thing I want to do. <laughs> So you're going to see like book trailers on there or like book announcements, but rarely my face because I just am like super awkward on camera uh, when it comes to TikToks. All I think is like, who wants to see me do a dance or run around? And I'm never clever uh, off the cuff like that. So um, I do have a TikTok account. You can check it. A lot of my Instagram stuff will be kind of on both those places. But uh, Instagram is probably my main social media platform. I have tried to back off of social media as much as I possibly can yeah. while still being a bare minimum connected because I do like to see how all my author friends are getting along and what's going on. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but authors in general, are, I'm like, I'm shy. That's why I don't act. Like For me, writing is acting for shy people. I can play pretend all day and no one really sees me do it. So trying to do that on TikTok is like my worst nightmare. 
that is my horror. <laughs> something that fascinates me, and this is like uh, noticing that someone else's eyes are open during prayer, I'm aware. Uh, but when I'll see another author that's on Twitter just updating all day, but I know you're incredibly prolific. You've got three books coming out this year. How? How do you have How do you time? Do it? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I do not know. I mean, I, I wish I had whatever magic potion that is because I would drink it 100%, but, but I don't. <laughs> So for my one to two tweets a week, esteemed audience, follow me at MG Ninja. Uh, as always, even better yet, head to the website because I will definitely update that with great information and interviews with authors, editors, literary agents, the world's best people at middlegradeninja.com. Download your free copy of the Book of David, Chapter One by Robert Kent. Hopefully it will scare you silly. It's a haunted house. There's flying saucers. What more could you want? And as always, God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.